From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Club Q will go on. It has to go on. When you hear the stories and you understand what it means to this community. Today, Club Q co-owner Nick Gerzeka, who vows to keep the business going after the mass shooting that killed five and hurt many more. He can't say yet what the club will look like. There's talks of community center. There's talks of, you know, what, what do people want to see from Club Q? A dance floor, a lounge. We don't know. A park out front. Berzeka tells us how his surviving employees have fared. I ask if he believes this was a hate crime. Also, how is the bar's relationship with Colorado Springs police? Does he have confidence in the Colorado Healing Fund? And what about security? Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. A young man got a job bartending and mopping floors at a new club that had opened here. This was in 2003. Eventually, Nick Gerzeka would become an owner of Club Q. And just as it became a home for him, he has helped make it a safe haven for others in the LGBTQ community. Gerzeka and his business partner are committed to reopening the club after last month's deadly shooting. But many questions remain. And Nick, thank you for being with us. Thank you. How, how are you doing? And are you even sure how you're doing? Uh, yeah, good question. I, I don't know how I'm doing. And I guess I am sure of that. It, it's different each day, each hour. We're staying together as a family, employees and performers. And as we navigate through each day, we, our emotions change. Have you gotten any quiet time, any downtime? Uh. I think just recently after, I think it took about 10 days for the world to settle down around us and, and for us to be able to be together in, in silence and be alone. What was that like? It's different. It's part of the healing process, I guess, to have to be by yourself in your own thoughts. And I think that's an important part of the healing process. For the first night of it, it's it had me going everywhere in my head. What's the future? What was the past? So each day that you get a little bit more silence, I think your thoughts get to develop a little bit more around what actually happened. I'll ask you more about that, but, um, well, let's start with the past. Tell me about walking into Club Q for the first time in 2002. I do remember it. The hide-and-seek was still around in Colorado Springs. It was the oldest gay bar, I think, at the time in the state. And that's all I had known was a dark, dingy, you know, 70s, 80s kind of style gay bars. And walking into Club Q, it was, you could see their idea was to have, you know, they called it a premier club or whatnot at the time. And you could tell it was clean and it was bright and it felt welcoming. It was a neat feeling. It was different. Heck, so. that one you mentioned was called Hide and Seek. I mean, that, that's not yeah. subtle, you know. No, it's not. Hide-and-seek was a very big staple in our community for many decades. They did a lot of work during 
the AIDS crisis and they had the fight before we had the fight. There's always been someone before any of us. Roughly a decade later, you became an owner. Would, would you take us to the moment you decided to buy in, Nick? It was always, you know, the Matthew, my business partner, he's the founder and yeah. he's been there as the rock in that building for 20 years. And as I just became more involved in business and involved in the community, it was always a joke that, oh, when you become the operating partner and haha, and always thinking it would be 10 years down the line. And it came earlier than expected. And it, I guess it wasn't a joke anymore. And we had serious conversations and I got to join the team at a different level and spend an amazing eight years. So many, I mean, hundreds of staff and performers and thousands of people's lights have been changed in that building. And it's just, it's just so neat to see there's people that did the work before me. And there's a whole group of staff now that's going to be the next part of Club Q. You know, shortly after the shooting, we asked on social media what Club Q means to people and the replies flooded in. I'm just going to read you a few of these. Obi Oberdeer of Lakewood writes, it was the first gay bar I ever went to, the first place I ever danced with my shirt off, the place I met some of my best friends, the place I went for my birthday a few years ago. I have so many memories of this beautiful place. I'm absolutely gutted right now. Tyler Vertivec recalls, I would frequent there daily after working waiting tables, then worked there for a short time and met my boyfriend of four years there dancing on the dance floor. Uh, Sheena Ancotti adds, it was the safe haven for queer folks in the middle of a very conservative city. I was thankful for Club Q as a place to wind down after Colorado Springs Pride events. And um, Tiffany Luna of Colorado Springs saying, Club Q was the first place I ever felt accepted, the first place I ever felt home, like I belonged, like I fit. My heart is broken. Gerard Gray specifically tells a story of how Club Q intervened when there was trouble getting funding for an LGBTQ group at the nearby University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Do you, do you want to speak a little more to the club's influence beyond its, you know, it's, its dance floor and its bar and its tables yeah, and its... It, it, it's, it, it's, uh, club Q's influence, Club Q's influence on people's lives and, and, and Club Q's influence on politics or, and, and anything in the city has it's been the energy, the force, and that's never been one person in that building. Again, there's, there's one person that's provided that building and made sure it's here, and that's Matthew. Matthew Haynes. There's one person that's done that, but the force and the energy in that building, that's been built over two decades, and you can take any one of us away from it, but you can't take that away. Hmm. And I think that's all of these stories we keep hearing about, you know, Club Q changed my life, and it saved my life and, and became who I was. It's, it's a spirit. It's an energy that lives within you. It's a community. It's not just a bar. It's not just a building. It's not just a business for us. It's not just a job for the employees there. Derek and Daniel were so passionate. Let me, let me just say, you're speaking of Daniel oh. Aston and Derek Rump. They were two of your employees among the five murdered at Club Q. 
and and go ahead. You maybe share a few words about them. Um, yeah, Daniel and Derek were Club Q, and when we say that, they they weren't just the only ones, but they lived it. They understood it. They had the passion. They they stood up for that building. They said, "This community cannot lose this." That's a beautiful part of this story, even though it doesn't have the best ending. Those two loved what they did. They loved this community, just as I think every other bartender. You read that story earlier. I, I half of those stories, I know those. I know those moments. Hmm. Meeting their husbands, meeting their wives, dressing in drag for the first time, discovering their queerness, discovering their gender identity. I do wonder if, uh, based on what you said there, that you feel you owe it to Daniel and Derek and so many others to keep the bar open, which you've said you will do. We keep getting asked these questions over the last week, and, and of course we're trying not to commit to anything. We don't understand what the future looks like. But as to keeping the bar open, Club Q will go on. It has to go on. When you hear the stories and you understand what it means to this community, what Club Q looks like and how it goes on, it's gonna, we're going to have the same building. Um, what it looks like inside, we don't know. Um, what the business operates as, we don't know. We don't know what the community is going to want from that space. And we have people coming in, I think, even at CC and the national organizations doing a needs assessment. There's talks of community center. There's talks of, you know, what, what do people want to see from Club Q? A dance floor, a, a lounge. We don't know. A park out front. Again, there's no commitment to anything. We, we have to navigate this with the past employees and the victims and survivors and families and the current employees. I hear you speaking of Club Q as part of an ecosystem you know, as part of something <laughs> bigger than itself. Let's talk about how the employees who survived are doing. Um, I, I think it's at all different levels. You know, we, we, we have people that work at the bar that it's their full-time job. We have others that it's a part-time job or they're performers. And so financially, everybody's affected differently at this time. Some can't go back to their full-time jobs with the trauma. And we also have families of deceased employees. And we also have even just the customers, the victims. It, it, I think that's all just as important. But the staff has been holding well together, sticking and um, having family dinners. There's been a lot of great groups that have put on events for them to gather together. Our, our goal is to keep everybody employed at the level that they were before or more. Yeah, and, how do you do that? I mean, practically, well, it sounds tough. Yeah, we, we have started a GoFundMe that is directly for the staff, performers, contractors, and the rebuilding of what we're doing, as we don't know what that's going to be. Um, we how, are using, and how do we know it's the legit one, Nick? Just it's, because. The, <laughs> it's the one set up by Matthew Haynes, and okay. it, the, the banner says official on it. GoFundMe has been very good at getting the scam out. My, one of my questions was going to be, faced with a thousand choices about where to send money, 
you know, local LGBTQ groups. There's the crisis fund. Uh, but I appreciate this idea. There's a lot of different funds and people need to donate to where their heart is and at the appropriate times. And the main focus and the main funding is going to the Colorado Healing Fund. And it needs to. That is going to go to help victims, families, survivors that are directly affected. I know there's been criticism of the, the Colorado Healing Fund. We still trust in it. We're pushing for a little bit more transparency, but we're confident that is the fund to address people's needs short-term and long-term. That was the best option right now. I know there's there's a few other GoFundMes, and then some of the victims, um, survivors, and families have GoFundMes. It is unclear to me, Nick, from media reports where you were the night of the shooting, and so I, I want to open this space for you to comment on that night and share what you want to share or, or, or not. Yeah, I was going to attend that night and hadn't. There was a, an event going on in Denver, so that's where a lot of staff had ended up at, and that's why I was just going to be there. And I got a phone call before I even could make a decision if I was going or not, and we were there, I think Matthew was there six minutes after the phone call, and I was there maybe eight. I wouldn't have been quote that, but within minutes at the scene and um, was not at the scene as it started. We were, we were arriving with the first responders. Is there anything you want to reflect on what you saw or experienced? No, I don't. Yeah. I just, I did. It's something that I don't think anybody, if you were there, you know what you're dealing with on the night. Yeah. That would be a trigger, you know, I think for too many people. Yeah. You know, the scene was then locked down for some time as investigators did their work. And I imagine you have been back to the building since the police reopened the scene. And uh, again, I'll invite you to comment on what that experience was like or simply to not. Yeah, we um, once the police gave the building back uh, over to the club, um, the memorial had formed out on Academy. And we've had a lot of people that were waiting to come back and actually be at the building to show their respects. Academy is Academy Boulevard. Academy Boulevard, yes. So it's just, there's a little strip mall just a a bit away from us. And then it was out there because the rest was a crime scene. And we knew we were getting the building back and we, but we didn't know what we were going to do with the memorial. And uh, several of us just grabbed a cross that was out for each person and we had uh, memorialized nice pictures and, and little bios of each person on the building and we put the crosses there and it's completely silent and the people in the parking just anybody around just started picking up flowers and walking them 300 feet away to the building and moved the memorial it was just peaceful and it was quiet and then some things have been brought inside to let the families and victims see the love that's poured out in the handwritten letters and posters from children and adults and christians and and people of every walk of life showing love to them and the whole community it's so beautiful 
Do you believe this is a hate crime? Unfortunately, I do. Yes, I, I don't think there's a, a way it is not. The, so recently in our history, the amount of talks about the words, and I don't even want to say them, that about drag queen story time and this false narrative that is spread so widely on the internet and people come to believe those things. And then when you live with that hate in your heart, because I don't believe someone could do this without hating so badly. And again, on the, the eve of Trans Day Remembrance and a, a, the eve going right into it, this incident happened and those don't seem like coincidences and, and I wish they were, but it, it, it proves more than ever why we need a safe place. Do LGBTQ clubs need better security? I, that's a really interesting, difficult, probably question for, on many realms. When you see this type of incident, because we, when we went after Orlando, we worked really heavily with the Colorado Springs Police Department and we did put in other measures and, but what are those measures? You know, you can have a metal detector, but somebody with those type of assault rifles, a metal detector is not stopping you, you know, outside of a lot of these bars or or shootings, there's, there is armed guards and they're their first one shot. And so a tougher security measure would be to not have these types of weapons on the street. I know that folks at Pulse in Orlando have reached out, uh, again, another LGBTQ club that was attacked was that was that helpful yeah they they met with uh with matthew of some of the people from the the one pulse foundation that's been very helpful and then they they pulled an event together for the staff and and some survivors were there and some families and it was just a, a, a mismatch of different people that could handle to be around that day and it was a nice closed event with with lunch. They were just there to give words of support. It was really neat. There's a Pulse, who's a customer survivor, and sorry, Josh, but I can't remember which. He just moved to the city, to Colorado Springs a year ago. And part of his healing is making these stars. And that's what he does. And he sends them out to different events like these. And it's just, it was it's, it's ironic that he Part of his healing is to make these things and he's been making them in our city for the last year. And a lot of us didn't know he was in our community yet. I mean, he has friends here, but it was really neat that that support was just in our own backyard. You've praised Colorado Springs officials for their handling of the attack and its aftermath. Um, How would you describe Club Q's relationship specifically with the police before this? We've had a wonderful relationship and I'm not, I, that is quite honest. I don't even remember when, but an officer had a great idea of starting a neighborhood bar group thing. And we would meet at the police department out on powers, you know, once a month or once a quarter. And it was different police that were in charge of that area, you know, ones that would 
be assigned to each bar and all the bar owners, we, we, would, we all went on to a, a scanner system with each other. And we, we, we just kind of built a little bar community within our neighborhood so we could share what was happening, that police could understand what was going on in the bars. And it was, it was really neat. And then they spawned more street cops and we had the ones that were assigned to us. So every Fridays and Saturdays, they would come into the bar and, hey, how you doing? And have you seen anything weird? And they had a personal relationship with us, like a liaison. And we've done Pride Fest with them for the last, I mean, years. And, and even during the heightened security during Pulse at Pride Fest, and they've just had such a good relationship. And it was interesting. It was six years ago working with them and trying to help them understand our community was a bigger learning curve than when this tragedy happened and they started using pronouns and people's actual names, not a name under their birth certificate. It was really respectful and neat. And we didn't teach them that. They learned that themselves. You're comparing, I think, the conversations in the wake of Pulse in Orlando to the conversations today. Right. Yeah. And, and the conversations in the wake of Orlando were, they were respectful, but they hadn't understood our community. They just needed some guidance and they respected all of that. But it was, it was really neat to see that they had done their own LGBT obvious outreach well before this. Before we go, you've been so generous with your time, Nick. Um, is there something you think the coverage of this event is missing or getting wrong? I think I don't I, I think the coverage of this is is it's telling a beautiful story. I'm learning so much from the coverage of this. I've been in and out of that building off and on for 20 years, and I I have my own stories. I know my people that I know from there, but to see these stories and poems and books that have been written well before this about Club Q and how it's affected them, that I think it's, it's getting, it's the story that needs to be told out of this is the story that is, the, the story of the customers, the community they got there, the, the employees, the families of, of, of the deceased, like those, that is the story that's being covered and it's beautiful. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Nick Rzeka is co-owner of Club Q here in Colorado Springs. I'm Ryan Warner, and our show continues in the next half hour with a closer examination of the Colorado Healing Fund. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. You're back with Colorado Matters from KRCC and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. Before the break, I asked Club Q co-owner Nick Gerzeka about where to direct donations following the attack. Let's take a deeper look now at the nonprofit he mentioned, the Colorado Healing Fund. 
It collects money for victims of mass casualty crimes and is come under criticism for how it retains and disperses funds. KRCC's Andrea Chalfin joins us to talk about it. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. What is the Colorado Healing Fund? And let's be crystal clear, is it run by the state? You know, a lot of people assume that probably because of the name. But no, the Colorado Healing Fund is not affiliated with the state of Colorado. It's an independent nonprofit. It was, though, started with money from the state attorney general's office. But now there's no state funding of any kind that goes to it. You know, that being said, though, public officials and lawmakers often steer donations to the fund as a safe, secure way to support victims of mass casualty crime. So that may play into the confusion as well. What specifically are people concerned about with the Colorado Healing Fund? There are two main things. The fact that the group keeps 10 percent of all money that comes in and the way that it actually distributes funds to victims. To that first concern that the fund keeps 10 percent. Right. The the Colorado Healing Fund is a nonprofit and it uses that portion for operating costs. You know, they have to pay for an audit each year. There's one employee who needs a salary. But since the amount is a percentage, there have been questions about whether they really need as much money as they retain Mm. and why administrative costs are are not fixed. You know, we spoke with Zachary Zachary Blair, and he's with a group called Victims First, which supports people and communities after mass casualty events. He helped raise about $7.5 million for those affected by the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. We know the work and the cost involved in administering and collecting funds for victims. And it's not 10% of millions of dollars. It's not, that's not the cost at all. You know, so in this, in this instance, uh, Frank DeAngelis with the Colorado Healing Fund says people have donated $1.8 million so far to the organization for Club Q victims. And that means the fund has collected $180,000 so far for their own purposes. With that fixed 10%. Okay, to the second concern, how they distribute the money, um, I'll note that they've already made disbursements in the Club Q shooting. The first one came not even 24 hours after the attack. You know, a lot of the language around the Colorado Healing Fund is about money going directly to victims. But in reality, the group gives funds to the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance, or COVA. And then COVA distributes the money as authorized by the Colorado Healing Fund Board. Former State Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman chairs that Healing Fund Board. And in a press conference last week, she said that model has been intentional from the start. We made a conscious decision not to be direct service providers because there are people who have that ability and expertise and training in Colorado who are already doing that work. And there was no need to duplicate services that were working. You know, but Zachary Blair, who we heard from just a a little bit ago, says it's humiliating for survivors and families to go to an organization to so-called prove that they need help when it should be obvious who is eligible. He also thinks the formula could be more equitable. Uh, They do use what they call a needs-based assessment that sort of ranks the level of trauma and doles out the cash accordingly. This no doubt gives people pause as they consider donating to the Colorado Healing Fund, um, as everyone from the governor to as we said, a Club Q co-owner has suggested doing. You know, that's true. I mean, the Colorado Healing Fund Board is working to be more transparent and even find a way to cover their administrative costs that doesn't come from these donations. They've been open with the media and even said they're having internal discussions about what to do with a potential surplus of money. So things are happening, but this is uh, just a question of personal ethics 
and uh, trust, really. You know, we asked Zachary Blair with Victims First if he thinks people should continue to donate to the Colorado Healing Fund. I think people need to rally it behind a true victims fund where 100 percent goes to victims and then ask the Colorado Healing Fund to give that money back to the victim pool so that the donations collected for victims goes directly to victims. You know, but indeed, as we heard earlier, one of the owners of Club Q says they still trust the fund and people should, too. To Zachary Blair's point, how do people know if there is a victims fund that gives 100 percent of what's collected to victims? I mean, Andrea, there are so many different fundraising efforts and we know scammers Mm -hmm. seize on tragedy. Yeah, you know, that's really a hard question. And anyone can make a GoFundMe or something similar and say they're doing one thing with the money, but then go do something else. Everyone we talked to said to be skeptical of that. And for its part, GoFundMe says fraudulent fundraisers, you know, they make up less than one-tenth of one percent of all of their fundraisers. And uh, the company says it takes swift action against fraud. Outside of that, look at the track record of an organization and do some digging before making a donation. I would also say, you know, the close the group is to the actual cause or person you want to support, the more likely you are to have your money go where it is that you want it to go. We've also seen people sharing Venmo accounts for victims online, and a lot of folks are choosing to give that way, which as long as you have the right account and it's who you think it is, is one of the most direct ways to support someone. Andrea, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. KRCC's Andrea Chalfin there. Our colleague Abigail Beckman contributed to that reporting. In related news, the largest GoFundMe effort for Club Q announced it's joining forces with the National Compassion Fund, and it says 100% of donations will go directly to victims. Funerals for people who died at Club Q have started. This weekend here in Colorado Springs, family and friends of Raymond Green Vance gathered. After the funeral, they released doves and held a vigil. Recording of the service inside wasn't allowed, but at the vigil, with street noise in the background, Vance's girlfriend spoke. Cassandra Firo used a wheelchair as she recovers from her injuries at Club Q. She said she felt blessed to be welcomed into Raymond's family and his friend group. She said he talked a lot about his friends, and she hopes they know how much they meant to him. And I, I just, if... If anything, man, I just hope that you guys love each other. Um, Just hold each other real close. Hug, kiss each other. Even if y'all don't do that, just just love your loved ones. I think that that's really important. Raymond was always about love. Um, To Raymond, um, I'm gonna miss you a whole lot. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I'm so happy that you're not in pain. You're peaceful, all that. I just am very blessed to have known you. Reverend Alicia Erickson of Pikes Peak Metropolitan Community Church also spoke. She advised people to let the grief they are feeling come and to ask a friend to help hold that grief if it gets to be too much. The reverend closed by thanking Raymond for sharing his light with the world. He was 22. This is Colorado Matters from KRCC and CPR News. Colorado gave women the right to vote in 1893. Getting this right took a few attempts. 
1876, the year Colorado was admitted to the Union, the authors of the state constitution did not include equal voting rights in the document. Instead, they said, let's put it to a vote next year. Susan B. Anthony traveled the state in support, yet that referendum failed by a wide margin. But Colorado women continued to organize over the next 16 years, so much so the next time men voted on equal suffrage, the measure passed by 6,000 votes statewide, causing the Delta Independent to wonder about women's new power. Many questions arise as to what effect it will have. How will they vote? What percentage will vote? Will they want office? Yes, the very next year, three women were elected to the state legislature. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the best football players in history is coming to Boulder. Deion Sanders now at the 30, the 35, 40, 45, midfield, down the sideline. Only Christie can catch him. He's on his way for a touchdown. Neon Deion saluting as he goes. Wouldn't you know, he'd find a way. Bear throws. It's picked off in the end zone by Deion Sanders. Look at him go. It's Deion. You know it's coming. Prime time. Prime time. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you couldn't write a script like this. As much a commodity as he is a player. And Sanders relishes the spotlight. A high-octane, high-profile personality who steals the spotlight wherever he goes. I feel like I was somewhat of an entertainer doing what I love to do. My passion just came out. I just had a tremendous gift from by the grace of God. I mean, I think everybody who receives a gift ought to be happy about the gift. Deion Sanders is set to be the new coach of the CU Buffs. He was inducted into the Football Hall of Fame a decade ago when he talked about the making of his persona, Primetime. So I admired this game. I liked this game. It taught me how to be a man. It taught me how to get up. It taught me how to live and play with pain, this game. This game taught me so much about people. It taught me so much about timing. It taught me so much about focus, dedication submitting oneself and sacrifices this game, this game, this game. And I went at this game and I attacked this game because I made a promise that I needed this game to fulfill. And I said, Mama, because I was tired of seeing her go to work and come home all tired. I said, I'm going to be rich one day. Mama, I'm going to make a lot of money. And you will never have to work another day of your life. My mama say that's fine, but until the end, you get that lawnmower and go out there and cut that grass. The man known as Prime Time during his playing days is now called Coach Prime. On Sunday, Sanders was introduced as the Buffs' new football coach. The announcement generated an electricity that athletic director Rick George hopes will overcome the buzzkill that has lately enveloped the program. I think we all know it's been a real challenging year, maybe a year and a half, but today's a new day. This is when we focus on what's ahead and the bright future that's ahead of us and coming together for a common purpose, and that's to bring this program back to national prominence. That's what we have to do. It starts today. It's time for everybody to come together, regardless of how you felt the last 12 months or 18 months. It's a new day today. Everybody said, let's go all in. It's time to go all in.
Sanders not only played 14 NFL seasons, he also played Major League Baseball, sometimes concurrently. Famously, he's the only man to play in both the Super Bowl and the World Series. Just as memorable is this commercial he made with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in the 1990s. So what's it going to be, Dion? Football or baseball? Both, boss. Both? Both. Offense or defense? Both. Both? Both. 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 Pizza Hut. Meat lovers or stuffed crust pizza? Both. But in CU football, he takes on a uniquely daunting challenge. The Buffs have been a losing team for most of the last two decades. They've also been through three other coaches in the last five years. Needing to make a splash, Rick George turned to Sanders, pursuing him for much the last two months. Sanders will leave Jackson State University in Mississippi, where he turned things around, the team going undefeated this season with a bowl game to play. Whether Sanders achieves the same level of success in Boulder remains to be seen, but on Sunday, he indicated he knew what George and the program are looking for. Now that I've gotten here and I see it, and I understand it, Rick, and I can grasp it, and I can touch it, and I can feel it, and I can taste it, I truly understand what you want. All you want is an opportunity to win, to compete, to dominate, to be amongst the elite, to be amongst the best. And darn it, I'm going to give you that. At one point Sunday, Sanders was asked if he's worried about living up to the expectations. Did you see the way I walked in here? Did you see the swagger that was with me? (laughs) Worry? Baby, I'm too blessed to be stressed. (laughs) Yeah, come on, I'm too darn blessed to be stressed. I've never been one for peer pressure. I put pressure on peers. I've never been one to worry. I make people worry. I, I don't... I don't get down like that. I'm too darn confident. And you've heard me in this quote many times. That's my natural, natural odor. I don't even work alone. That's confidence I'm, I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I do not worry. You need to worry about getting a spot in here the next time we do this because there's going to be more cameras than this. That's the worry. <laughs> Sanders will coach Jackson State in one last game against North Carolina Central December 17th. But befitting his two-sport career, he assured the audience he can multitask. He even had some advice for CU officials who might be asked when he'll be back in Boulder. I just want you to know we're on the way. Not to compete, but to win. Not to show up, but to show out. Not to be among the rest, but to be the absolute best. Uh, We're coming to work. We're not coming to play. We're coming to kill, not to kick it. Baby, I got to believe that we're coming. You got to feel that energy inside of you that we're coming, don't you? You got to feel it that we're going to be there. You got to feel it when you get in that stadium. You better get in there early because time kickoff consumes. Baby, we're coming. Do you understand it? Do you feel that? Do you understand the intensity, the excitement, the drilling, the rush that I got right now that I can't wait till this thing kicks off because we are coming. Boulder, Colorado, you have no idea what you've blessed me with, the opportunity that you've given to me, and I feel like I owe you. So every day I'm going to work for you. I'm going to strain for you. I'm going to develop for you. I'm going to commit for you. I'm going to do the things that others wouldn't do. Baby, we're coming. So anybody ask you something about when is he coming back, you say, I don't know, but I know he's coming. That is Deion Sanders, introduced Sunday as CU's new head football coach.
They're called Fresh Start Clinics, Second Chance Centers, and Weekend Court. They help people with outstanding warrants clear their names by bringing together prosecutors, public defenders, judges, and cops. CPR's Alice and Sherry followed one man trying to get a clean slate in Jefferson County. Anthony Marin was living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana as an electrician and has been wanted in Colorado on a felony check forgery warrant since the mid-2000s. He was struggling with alcohol addiction at that time, and much of it was a blur. He left the state in fear of getting caught if he came back. I, I didn't want to come back to Colorado. I didn't know what this was for, what was going to happen, and Kevin assured me that everything would be okay if I came. So here I am. Kevin is Kevin Clinkerfuse, who leads the Jefferson County Probation Department. Marn contacted him earlier this year and asked him what it would take to clear his name. Clinkerfuse didn't have much to offer him at the time, but he kept his file on his desk and... So months later, he called me back and said, still got your file. I need you to drive here. So 17 hours later, here I am. We all entered the courtroom. Judge Jennifer Melton was presiding. What, you, what have you been up to, Mr. Marin? Well, I have been on a roller coaster. Um, I was on probation two more times. Um, it's a little hard to, to hear this recording of Marin because he was talking so quietly, so quickly, and so nervously. Marin talked about how he went south for a new opportunity, but it took a little while to finally stay sober. When he almost died of a fentanyl overdose, he told his dad it was time. He's been residing in sober living for more than a year with a roommate and a job. Judge Melton crouched forward to hear him. Well, I mean, you, it looks like it's been a, a wild journey, but you're, you've turned a corner and yes, you're, you're, you're making something positive out of your life now. And, yes. Uh, oh, I opened a business. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I was able to open my own handgun business. And also I work Roughly 164,000 people a year get their warrants forgiven by the state's courts, according to data. That number ticked up to 167,000 warrants in 2021, a four-year high after the pandemic. Prosecutors say that number could have something to do with the new popularity of these warrant-clearing clinics. There's no kind of side saying, hey, this is the wrong thing to do. Everybody's saying this is the right thing to do. Tarek Sheikh is an assistant district attorney in Jefferson County. He said his boss, DA Alexis King, promised to do these when she was elected two years ago, and they've held three so far. The office has 28,000 outstanding warrants. The majority of them are low-level, and a lot of them are for driving infractions. They have cleared 1,700 of those driving infraction ones last year if they didn't have anything to do with alcohol or a car accident. They also combed thousands of cases and discovered that 8,000 warrants were for dead people. Sheikh says the fair serves to get the criminal justice system out of the way. And as we've heard already today, so many different stories of individuals saying, you know, hey, I've started my own business, I've moved on, I've gotten treatment of my own accord and those types of things. It's really wonderful then to say, hey, we don't need to screw all that up from the criminal justice side. Take care of your situation and we're happy to be here to engage Jeff with you. Jeff Pilkington is the chief judge for Jefferson County. He was milling around the warrant clearing fair in a fleece jacket, chatting with defendants and attorneys. He says the important thing about these Saturday clinics is to keep people engaged in the justice system. We're better off to have people in the system, uh, to get back in the system, than uh, people not in the system and have a warrant looming over their heads. So that was the effort of all of those parties. Attending these warrant clearing fairs is kind of a palate cleanser in what can feel like an often dysfunctional criminal justice system. 
There are lots of redemption stories. Prosecutors, public defenders, probation officers, cops, heck, even judges coming together to help people seal records, pay fees, walk out with a clear name. Marin says this was the last thing hanging over his head from his past life. I thought I was going to get some fines and fees to pay, but she went ahead and squashed it all. She did. So. It's the last thing. I mean, there's like, it's a weight. And with that, Marin and his elderly father walked out of the Jefferson County Courthouse. They planned to get a hotel room and to get some sleep for the rest of the day. He planned to return to Baton Rouge, his small business, and the rest of his life the next day. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Finally today, we are within tinseling distance of the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. A few final tickets are still available to our seventh annual event. It's modeled after an old Judy Garland Christmas special on CBS, and it's a chance to gather with other listeners and see radio in the making. And while the big show takes place in Denver, we were sure to include an act from Southern Colorado. We held a contest to appear on our stage. You will have to wait to learn who won, but this week we are showcasing the extraordinary runners-up. Here are our judges, KRCC's Vicki Greger and Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Vicki, the finalist we are showcasing today is a Mr. Joe Johnson. And from what I understand, Joe Johnson is a friend of KRCC's. Oh, yeah. He's been around this scene for years and years. Joe Johnson is somebody you want to go catch anytime you see him playing live. Uh, he says in his entry, he's a veteran of almost 20 years in the Southern Colorado music scene and a good ambassador for this region musically. He submits his cover of I'll Be Home for Christmas, and he submitted this song as a YouTube video, and his look just totally complements his voice, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. There is, you know, the fire in the background, the beautifully a little bit subdued lighting. I got to tell you what I thought of, Dan, when I saw this is all of those holiday specials that we've all kind of grown up with where Johnny Cash or maybe John Denver, Waylon and Willie perhaps, invite you into uh, their home or the stage set that's their home and doing a song that means something to all of us. You know, one of those chestnuts where you're just brought into their their world. Like for that moment, it's like, oh yeah, we all share this holiday. You're famous, I'm not, but in this moment, we've just gathered around a fire to sing a song we all love. And I just had a total tidal wave of warmth when I when I saw that. Oh, I think warmth is, is so great. You do feel a little bit like you're part of Joe's family <laughs> for the duration of this song. And, uh, and also, you know, he's got that voice that hits the perfect quasi-mournful tone that adds something extra to a country rendition of a song like this. Exactly. And this is a hard-working musician. Joe has a lot of road miles, certainly behind him and under him. So when he's talking about being home for Christmas, it really means something because, you know, here's a guy that's been probably away for a lot of Christmases. So uh, I kind of resonate with that one, too. All right. So what we have here is... Joe Johnson's rendition of I'll Be Home for Christmas. 
be home till Christmas. You can count on me. Please have snow, mistletoe, presents round the tree. Christmas Eve. Johnson, a runner-up in our Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza Southern Colorado Music Contest. A mouthful there, but just know that some final tickets to the live show December 15th in Denver are still available at cpr.org holiday. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs with special thanks to Greer Hancock, Jeff Beery, and Joel Bielek. You're with KRCC and CPR News. Christmas Eve.